Shalom, shalom, friends. Thank you so much for being here. We're so excited to think about social justice and kashrut law today. Because in this talk, we're going to look at the ways in which social justice can be found in the Jewish laws governing kashrut. We will look at examples of halachic rulings on kashrut, where concern for the poor and for the vulnerable members of our society played a decisive role in shaping the halakha, from the shulchan aruch to the modern responsa. We're thrilled today to learn with Rabbi Shana Abramson, who was born in New York and currently resides in Jerusalem. She is a musmechet of Beit Midrash Harel. She's also an Eden Center certified instructor in the laws of Nida. Rabbi Shana holds an, uh, MAs in Jewish education and in political science from Hebrew University and a BA in history from John Hopkins University. Her MA thesis focused on the mikvah experiences of women in Israel during the COVID-19 pandemic. She's currently pursuing a PhD with a focus on gender and halakha from Bar Ilan University. She is one of the founders of Kihilat Shirat Chaim, a partnership prayer group in Yerushalayim, in Jerusalem. So uh, Rabbi Shana, thank you so much for being here and the floor is yours. So thank you so much. I'm a big fan of Uri Vasetik's work and I'm very excited to be here. And the first thing that I'm actually going to do is I'm going to go ahead and just share my screen so that um, anyone who's watching will have access to the sources. And today, I think I want to present a little bit of a counter narrative to the narrative that we generally have. I think that the narrative that we generally have is that um, in the modern era, we have a heightened awareness of social justice issues and specifically of economic justice issues, the issues of caring for the economically vulnerable members of our society, the issue of thinking about food insecurity, and how can we can ensure that people in our communities and around the world have access to food, especially with rising food prices around the world right now. And then we think when we look at these modern values and modern concerns, how can we reconcile them with halakha, with Jewish law, which is seen as something that is contradictory perhaps to those types of concerns and those types of values. And what I want to argue today is that in fact, those values about caring for the economically vulnerable members of our society and for worrying about food insecurity are in fact built into the halakha itself. And I specifically want to focus on kashrut laws and the laws that uh, are connected with food to see how a concern for vulnerable members of our community and a concern for food insecurity um, is really part of those laws. So before we dive into the actual halachic text, I wanted to bring something a little bit more theoretical. I want to start out with a quote from Rabbi Dr. Daniel Sperber, who's a preeminent contemporary scholar of halakha, and he writes a lot about moral values within halakha, and he's going to help us define some of the values that we're going to look at in the sources today. So what I've done is I've prepared a source sheet in Hebrew and English. I am going to read in Hebrew and translate as I go. And people are very welcome to follow along in either the Hebrew or the English on the screen. So at the foundation of halakha, you have these basic values. And those basic values are 
that concern for human beings and for preventing the suffering of human beings is a central pillar of halakhic thought. And the thing that ties these values together is that it's not the simple law that um, dictates the halakhic outcome, but it's what goes beyond that. Which is really these moral values. So the individual application of the halakha can change according to the time and the place, but it always has to change in accordance with these ethical values. So because we have these concerns for moral laws, when a rabbi is making a halachic judgment, they can't see themselves bound by previous case law. They have to take into account the changes of time and place and the moral values that are in front of that. And now we're going on and we're expounding a specific value among those moral values, and that's the value we're going to focus on today. So there's the principle that the Torah worries for people's financial well-being. God is concerned for people's financial well-being because if people do not have uh, resources to take care of their basic needs, then they can't really live a happy and a fulfilled life. And this principle dictates a very important halakhic rule, um, which is that we when we are going to make halakhic rulings, are concerned that those halakhic rulings should not constitute an undue financial burden for those who are practicing halakha and for those who will abide by our halakhic rulings. So because of this rule, when a rabbi is making a halakhic decision, they are halakhically obligated to search out ways to be lenient within the halakhic framework in order to not cause economic distress to people who are suffering financially. So this sort of lays out our theoretical groundwork that we see that there is a specific concern for halakha not causing an undue burden to people and for worrying about people who are living in poverty. And these are two very important halakhic rules that are supposed to act as guidelines for the rabbi when the rabbi is making a halakhic ruling. Um, and if this is a more theoretical text, then I want to ground it in a little, a little bit. And we're going to look at a line from our first responsa of the evening. And there's a responsa from Rav Moshe Feinstein, who was a preeminent rabbi of the 20th century, uh, well known for his responsa, people from around America and around the world wrote uh, letters to him, and those letters are still often studied today. And I didn't bring sort of the technicalities of the Kashra case that preceded this, but I will just say that this quote is in connection to a question he was asked about Kashra. So, right, we just said that there's this halakhic principle that halakha cannot constitute an undue financial burden on those who practice it. But there's a subjective element of how do you define what constitutes an undue financial burden. So Rav Moshe Feinstein is saying that when we go to calculate 
what constitutes an undue financial burden, it's very important to not be stringent. Our definition should be expansive. If there is a case of doubt, then we should err on the side of caution in order to prevent causing people economic distress. And our definition might change depending on the circumstance, on the person in question, on the current time, the current economic context. And now Rav Moshe Feinstein introduces the element of time. So if we have thought of this concept of not causing undue financial burden as something that is supposed to apply to the content of halakha, now all of a sudden we're seeing it has to apply to the form of halakha. When the rabbi is thinking about how long they are going to take to answer the question, when they are thinking about how to address the person who asked them this question, they also have to think about the ways that that might impact the person asking. So in this example, we're concerned that if there's somebody who's struggling economically, and perhaps this question um, pertains to their livelihood, then those days when they're waiting for an answer could actually cost them a really big economic burden. It really could negatively affect their livelihood. And this principle that you shouldn't delay when giving someone an answer because maybe that delay could cause them economic distress if the question pertains to economics and to their livelihood is all the more so if they owe taxes and fees and debts. So we've seen sort of two more modern um, approaches to this issue. And I want to step back now into the 16th century, and I want to look at the Shulchan Aruch. So the Shulchan Aruch is essentially a guidebook. It is a compendium of Jewish laws. It's kind of like the textbook of Jewish laws that is considered authoritative by many Jewish communities until today. Um, and I want to look at a place where the Shulchan Aruch is discussing the concept that is called So the concept is as follows. You have piece of kosher food A that comes into contact with piece of non-kosher food B. Now, all of a sudden, the previously kosher piece of uh, food A is considered non-kosher. And now if this piece of food A came into contact with piece of food C, which is kosher, it could be considered as contaminating that piece of kosher food C and making that piece of kosher food C not kosher. So it's basically um, a law where the practical uh, application is that you start off with maybe a little bit of contamination from a, a source of non-kosher food to kosher, to kosher food that sort of is amplified and could wind up affecting large quantities of food. And this could, of course, in a case where all of that food was deemed not kosher, result in someone perhaps having to get rid of large uh, quantities of food that depending on their economic situation and the availability of food, specifically kosher food in their area, they might struggle to replace. So that is the context for this ruling. And now we're going to actually look at the source. So the Shulchan Aruch says, that this principle that I just mentioned, it doesn't apply to all types of kosher, non-kosher mixtures. It applies specifically to cases where there's been a mixture of meat and milk, which is prohibited according to halakha. 
And now we have Haggah. So the Ash, the excuse me, the Shulchan Aruch represents the Sephardi tradition. And now we have the gloss of the Ramah, who's writing in Poland, who represents the Ashkenazi tradition. So the Ramah starts by bringing the Ashkenazi tradition, which is stricter, and says that this rule applies to all types of kosher and non-kosher mixtures. However, he brings an exception to the stricter ruling he just brought, which is that it might not apply in cases of wet food mixtures. He now adds that this exception of not applying this principle to wet food mixtures should be applied to um, in cases where it would cause a big financial loss, right? If someone had to get rid of all this food, um, but it can't be applied in cases of meat and milk. I'm not going to get into the technicalities, but generally um, meat and milk is considered a stricter category for this specific halakhic principle. But what I want to take away from this is that the Ramah brings this stricter Ashkenazi tradition, but built into that tradition is that under certain circumstances, you should not apply it if it will cause someone to have an immense financial loss, right? And if it would cause someone to have to get rid of large quantities of food that they might struggle to replace. Um, and this means that actually, if there were a case where somebody would really struggle to replace that food, and the rabbi ruled that actually we're going to apply this principle and we're going to say that this food isn't kosher, that would not be the rabbi applying halakha. That would be the rabbi misapplying halakha. Mm -hmm. uh, and um, and um, actually the tradition is to apply this Ashkenazic stringency only in these cases where it would not cause economic distress. So we see here that this isn't some type of special dispensation that somebody has to go to the rabbi for. This is written into the halakhic textbook that in cases of economic distress, we would look for ways to not apply this principle that might cause large quantities of food to be thrown out um, if it would cause somebody economic distress in order to have to do so. So I think here we see already that there's a big concern for food security and for vulnerable members of society who might struggle to replace food that they have to get rid of. So I now want to move on to a different halakha. I'm not going to get into the nitty gritty of the halakha, but it is about a pot of kosher food that came into contact with some drops of non-kosher food. And again, we're looking at the Shulchan Aruch, right, at this uh, halakhic compendium. And the Shulchan Aruch says, Yesh mishamatir bishat hadchak, kigon be'erev shabbat, afilu shalo keneged harotav, afilu shalo keneged ha'ash, ayidei shishim. So there are some who permit us to say that this food, this pot of food that came into contact with drops of non-kosher food um, is kosher. If it's an emergency situation, such as Arab Shabbat, even if the drops of non-kosher food 
did not fall right next to where we had the kosher food and the pot was uh, not right against the fire just by virtue of having 60 units of food, um, of kosher food compared to the uh, units of non-kosher food. So I'm not gonna get into the, the sort of last clause and why it matters where the pot is and why it matters exactly where the drops fell against the pot, right? But I think, again, what's important here is that built into the halakha itself is this clause where we make exceptions for emergency. And to my mind, this Arab Shabbat situation, the situation where somebody um, ha is wondering if this food is kosher or not on Friday, is actually a food insecurity situation for a few reasons. First of all, if it's right before Shabbat, they might not have time to actually cook food before Shabbat, right? Imagine a situation where it's an hour before Shabbat, all the supermarkets are closed. You only have raw ingredients that cannot be eaten raw, and you're not going to have time to cook them before Shabbat. You would experience food insecurity regarding Shabbat. You'd be stuck for 24 hours without food. Um, and alternatively, it's often been a tradition for many people that really Shabbat is their sort of splurge meals of the week. And you could have a person who maybe was saving up all week for Shabbat. They use the rest of their food budget for that week on the Shabbat food, and they don't necessarily have extra food budget money to go out now and go to the supermarket and start shopping. Or if they are going to go to the supermarket and start shopping, maybe they'll be buying lower quality items because they can't easily afford to replace the higher quality items that they bought for Shabbat. So I think that um, here, it's not just about wanting people to enjoy Shabbat and have food for Shabbat, but that actually the Shulchan Aruch is sensitive to the fact that this might be a potential concern for food insecurity situation. And because of that, he defines it as an emergency. And again, I want to emphasize that this emergency is not some special um, you know, story where someone went to the rabbi and showed them their chicken. It's something that is built into this authoritative halakhic compendium itself. And now I want to move on to the Taz, um, who is a commentary on the Shulchan Aruch. And the Taz picks up on the fact that the Shulchan Aruch said emergency, which is a very broad term. And then he gave us Arab Shabbat, which is a very specific case. So the Taz kind of wonders what else might constitute an emergency regarding this kashrut law. And he says, the kol tzarech gadol. So first of all, emergency is for any situation where there's a great need, right? You can't always give an exhaustive list in advance. Sometimes you know that something's an emergency only when you're in the situation. Um, but now he does list some things. So example A is guests, which I think is very analogous to the Arab Shabbat situation because maybe a person spent a lot of money on food for guests, either buying nice items or buying a large quantity of food, food items, and it would not be easily eat for them from a financial perspective to just go to the supermarket and replace those items. Or alternatively, if this case of potential non-kosher contamination, you know, happened 10 minutes before you have 20 people arriving at your door, what are you going to do? You might not have food to give them because you don't have time to, um, to prepare the food. Um, and then another example is, oh, have said Merubah, right? Or if ruling that this food is unkosher um, and putting someone in a situation where they would have to get rid of it and then worry about replacing it and buying new food would constitute an undue financial burden for them. Oh, the Ani. 
Or if someone is already living in poverty, we don't want to increase their economic distress. So basically for all of these situations, they're subjective and the person who is deciding the halakha will decide when they are deciding, they'll look at the case at hand and decide based on the specifics of the case at hand. The Siman So he's quoting from the Maharimins from a different source. So now we have this other principle, which is that also when a rabbi is giving the halachic ruling, it's very important for them to let the person know the reason behind the halachic ruling. And specifically in this case, it is important for them to explain the moral values underlying the halachic reason so that the person is not confused when they find out that a week later, somebody else got a different answer. And I think that when we first read this, this can seem almost like a throwaway line, but that this line actually is teaching us something much greater about halakha. If we think of studying Jewish texts as an intellectual way of learning about God, halakha is the way that we learn about God through our lived embodied practice that we repeat every single day, right? Through the things that we put into our body. And I think that if halakha is divine law, and it is supposed to represent God, and it is supposed to help us to connect to God, then it has to embody godly values. And when we think of God, we think of um, a God of mercy and kindness, and we're taught to emulate those godly values. That just as God is merciful, we should also be merciful. And halakha really is a way of teaching us how we can emulate those godly values of kindness and of mercy and giving and caring for the vulnerable. And that is why uh, it's really theologically imperative that halakha have this concern for not causing people economic distress. And that's why it is so important for the rabbi to explain these values to the people in their community when they're giving the halakhic rulings in order to help the people in their community and the people they are talking to, to use halakha as a pedagogic tool to learn about God, to grow closer to God, to learn how to emulate God's values of loving kindness. And with that in mind, I want to continue in the Shulchan Aruch and specifically at the Ramah, the Ashkenazi gloss to the Shulchan Aruch. And I'm not bringing the um, Kashra-related technicalities of either of the next two sources. I will just say that they are both related to Kashrut issues. And we see that in them, the Ramah uses almost identical language. He says in the first one, Ubamakom have said yesh lahakel, one should be lenient in a case where it will cause someone an economic loss. Um, and in the second, he says, Ubamakom have said one should be lenient in a case where it will cause immense financial loss. But, but what we really see is a consistency that is built into the laws, that is built into the black and white text of the law in the guidebook, considered authoritative by Jewish communities until today, um, that is that you are supposed to be lenient in cases where not doing so would cause people economic distress or would cause people food insecurity when it comes to kashrut law. 
And this is a consistent principle that is part and parcel of the law, such that if one were applying kashra law without taking these values into account, they would not be applying the halakha properly. Um, and until now, we've been looking at the Shulchan Aruch, which is really, as I've said, sort of the law textbook. And now we're going to look at the ways that this halakhic principle of worrying about the vulnerable in our community and worrying about not causing people economic distress or food insecurity um, has played out in more modern responsa, which we can kind of think of as the applied case law. So I want to start off by looking at the Pitre Tshuva. Um, the Pitre Tshuva is essentially a compendium of responsa related to the Shulchan Aruch. And here he brings a summary of a responsa that was written by the Khatam Sofer, who was a very well-respected uh, Hungarian rabbi writing in the 1800s. And we're going to dive right in. Va'ayen betshuvat chatam sofer, odok ben Torah achad didchika leishata. Ve'ein parnasato ki ime asiot gvinot, umevakesh laham silo heter, lahamir chalav baor keva, ki amadava keva below or makalkel hagvinot. So we start off with the framing of the question. We have a person who is really struggling financially, and the only method they have for making a living is producing cheeses. And they want permission to be able to use the stomach lining as a reactive agent uh, when they produce the cheeses. So this would normally be halakhically forbidden. And that the reason that they want to use the stomach lining is that using just the stomach without the lining messes up the cheeses. And also it makes it take longer to produce the cheeses so they can produce less cheeses and therefore or earn less of a livelihood. Um, so that is the basic framing of the question. We see that it's really being asked out of a place of economic distress. And the Khatam Sofer brings a variety of halachic arguments. He brings a variety of halachic arguments in a way that makes it very clear that each one of them by itself is not sort of sufficient to allow this, but he's kind of combining um, all of the arguments together. And then he says at the end of his responsa, so in addition to all these sort of technical halachic arguments that I just brought you, so because in this case, this person is living in poverty and it would cause an undue financial burden on them to tell them that they can't use the stomach lining. It would really affect their livelihood, as we saw from how they framed the question. Um, I think that we should allow them to use the stomach lining. So I think here we see that actually the end of the responsa was really what necessitated um, the entire halakhic theoretical argument that the Khatam Sofer made. Meaning, the Khatam Sofer saw the question, he saw the person was in economic distress. He believed that because the person is in economic distress, we can't add to that distress and we need to find a way to say that this is allowed so that they can improve their cheese production and make a decent living wage. Um, 
and once he had come to that conclusion, then he looked for different halakhic arguments in order to be able to apply that conclusion. But really, the thing that is guiding the Khatam Sofer's thought here is concern for this person who's in economic distress, and specifically concerned that halakha cannot be a source of economic distress, especially for somebody who is already suffering. And if until now, we have been really thinking um, about individual economic distress, um, I want to say take a step back now and think about communal uh, economic distress. So we've seen that until now, that first of all, the concept of Hafsad Murubah, that halakha should not cause a person undue financial distress, is not some sort of foreign imposition on the law, but it's really part and parcel of the law so that somebody who does not take that into account when applying the law is not applying the law correctly. And we saw that first in the Shulchan Aruch and the Ramah, right, in the compendium of Jewish law. And now we saw it in the Khatam Sofer's responsa in this sort of applied case law and halakha being applied in real life. Um, but we've only seen it applied to a person on an individual level. Now we're going to see it applied on a more systemic level. So we're going to look at the Mishnah Bura, who's a pre-World War I uh, commentary on the Shulchan Aruch. Uh, the law at hand is actually not about kosher, but it is food-related. Um, many Ashkenazi communities have a custom to eat fish on Shabbat, such that um, many communities would consider it a religious obligation. And this led to a problem where sometimes fish sellers would know that people are going to buy fish for Shabbat because they feel religiously obligated to buy fish because of this custom. So they would purposefully drive up the prices um, and take advantage of that, knowing that even if they're overcharging, people will still buy because they feel this religious obligation. And I think that we can really perhaps think of parallels today where, you know, there are global markets and food consortiums. And sometimes we do see uh, certain levels of consortiums getting together and um, making a conscious effort to raise the prices on certain goods. So if the fish sellers are making the fish more expensive, the rabbis have a halachic obligation to tell their communities not to buy the fish for Shabbat for a few weeks until the fish sellers bring down the price. So here, not only is there a halachic obligation for a rabbi, you know, when deciding halacha to think about economic distress, but actually the rabbi is halachically obligated to tell his community to take action. Right? We need to think of a systemic solution and think about how we fix a system where people in our community cannot afford good quality foods. Um, so now there's a bit of a halachic dispute about what exactly constitutes the level of raising the prices so that the rabbis would be halachically obligated to institute this um, decree that you should boycott the fish sellers. 
Um, so the first opinion is that it has to be a price increase of a third. But um, the other opinion is that actually, if the prices have been raised to the level where the poorer members of our community cannot afford the fish, that is the point where we need to take communal action. It's not about a specific number. The question we need to ask ourselves is, can the vulnerable members of our community have nice food for Shabbat? And if the vulnerable members of our community cannot afford to have nice food for Shabbat, we have a communal obligation to stand up for them. Even if a person can afford to buy the fish, they have a communal obligation to express solidarity with those who cannot afford to buy the fish and to participate in the boycott and to take this collective action. And here the focus is really on fixing the system. The Mishnah Bura doesn't say that, uh, you know, the wealthy members of the community should give tzedakah, should give charity, right, and should have some sort of fish fund where the poorer members of the community can uh, use the funds to buy the fish, right? He is talking about fixing this the economic system itself that is taking advantage of the economically vulnerable so that these types of situations don't happen anymore. So I think here we see that the, when we're thinking of economic distress on a communal level, the obligation is even stronger, right? It's no longer enough for it to be a halakhic consideration when deciding um, a specific case law, but actually it's a halakhic call to collective action by the community. And this concept of really concern for community well-being and community food security um, is also seen in a response that we have by the um, by the Khatam Sofer, who we already saw. And we're going to go back to him in a minute. And I'm going to say here that um, that the Mishnabura, he was dealing with a case where they were talking about fish for Shabbat. And the Khatam Sofer that we are going to look at is talking about a case of meat. Now, we could have an entire sheer about the ethics of kashrut and eating fish and the ethics of kashrut and eating meat. But what I want to say for the purposes of this year is that both of these in the times of the Mishnabura and the Khatam Sofer were, were thought of as sort of, if not luxury items, then at the very least, at least uh, more expensive or high quality food items, right? So when we're thinking of food security for our communities and for the vulnerable members of our communities, it's not just about having food so you get, you know, your allotted number of calories, right? It's also about being able to have satisfying meals, being able to have enjoyable meals, being able to celebrate Shabbat, being able to have food that tastes good, being able to sometimes afford the food that is considered a more uh, luxury item or that is considered more expensive, to be able to afford food that is considered to be of a good quality. And with that in mind, we're going to move on to the um, Khatam Sofer, who's writing about a case um, that we perhaps think of as very modern, but he is writing in the 1800s Hungary. And that is the case where you have a community buying from a kosher butcher, and all of a sudden you find out that maybe the meat from this kosher butcher was not actually kosher. And you have this question of what do I do? And not what do I do, right? But what does this community do with this piece of knowledge? What do, does this community um, do with regards to the meat 
from this butcher that they faithfully bought from thinking it was kosher and now discovered there might have been a problem. So we have a very dramatic opening. So we have a deathbed scene. This kosher butcher is on his deathbed. He's very sick. He calls the local rabbi. He wants to make a full confession of all his sins. And the rabbi finds that he's a sound mind, and he takes this deathbed confession. So the last sin, the heaviest sin for last, the butcher confesses that there were times where he did shchita, the ritual slaughter, and he realized afterwards that there was a problem with the knife, which means that potentially the, the meat that he had just produced was not kosher. Um, but he said that the animal was kosher. He told everyone that it was a kosher animal, even though he knew that there was this potential problem with the knife and that potentially the meat was not, in fact, kosher. And at this point, the rabbi asked him, what enjoyment did you get from doing this? And he said, I was very stressed about making a livelihood, and that's why I did this. So we see, actually, that in this case, right, already we're seeing the factor of economic distress, that this person, the sin that they did was because they felt economic pressure. Um, and we have in parentheses that apparently they only made a profit from the kosher animals and not the non-kosher animals, and that is why they felt this economic stress to uh, say that the meat was kosher. So now we have the person turning to the Khatam Sofer is not the butcher, it's actually the rabbi, right? And the rabbi is saying, I'm here, I'm the rabbi of a community. My community brought, bought from this butcher. What do I do? So first of all, do I listen to this deathbed confession? How reliable? Do I think this deathbed confession is? And if I say that the deathbed confession is reliable and I believe the butcher, he was telling the truth. What is the rule of this, all the meat and not just the meat, but what about the dishes? Because a dish that was used to cook not kosher meat would not be considered kosher. So you really have this potential situation where it would be a massive loss for the community because they could have to get rid of all this meat that they have from the butcher and they might have to get rid of all of their um dishes if the dishes you know can't be koshered or at the very least kosher the dishes again would which would entail a certain type of logistical as well as potentially financial burden right so he's turning to the khatam sofer and he's saying what do i do um and the khatam sofer goes into technical arguments that i didn't bring we're skipping to the last line of the responsa. So it seems to me in this matter, that this would be a case of an undue economic burden, right? Which I think is very logical if we think about all the implications of what it would mean to say that this uh, meat is not kosher, right? Throwing out food, potentially throwing out dishes. So because it is this case of undue financial distress, if we were to say that the meat is kosher. Because of that, I think that we should 
determine that this, we will say that this meat is halakhically kosher. Now he ends with a quote from Tehillim, from Psalms, that the modest people should eat and be satisfied. And here, I think modest really has two meanings, right? It's sort of the everyday modest person, the good person, but also modest can sometimes, especially um, in older language, be someone who's struggling financially, and it's not enough for them to eat. We want them to eat and be satisfied. We want them to have good food. We're concerned, in other words, with the food security of the members of our society, and not just with the economically privileged members of our society. We're specifically worried for the food security of the people in our society who are not economically privileged, of the people who are experiencing economic distress. So we see here that on a communal level, the Khatam Sofer thought about what it would mean for this community and that it might cause an undue financial burden to the community if they have to get rid of the meat and potentially of the dishes that were used to cook the meat in, right? And that, you know, if we keep in mind how expensive meat has been traditionally and really still can be today, especially in some parts of the world, how difficult it can be to access kosher meat in some places, right? There's also an element of food security that um, of people having the money or even the logistical resources to replace the food or to replace their dishes, right? He's thinking about all these implications for the community, deciding it's a case of an undue financial burden on the community. And then he's going further and thinking it's not just about the entire community, but thinking specifically about those who are struggling within the community. And that is really the deciding factor that causes him to find a way to say that this meat from this butcher who made this deathbed confession is in fact kosher because he's not willing to ask the community to pay that type of price. And I think when, when we, we see the word yesbiu, that the modest people should be satisfied, we can think also of um, a way that we describe God in the Ashri prayer, uh, that God opens his hand and he uh, states every living thing. And if we go back to thinking of halakha as a way of teaching us to emulate God's values of caring for people, of kindness, of giving, of helping people to be satisfied, of helping people to meet their basic needs, then it really makes sense that this principle about worrying for the community and worrying for the vulnerable members of the community is a guiding principle in halakha and is a guiding principle for the Khatam Sofer when he's looking to apply the halakha. And if we think of halakha as divine law that is, is in some way a reflection of God in this universe, then if halakha were to be explained or interpreted in a way that went against those godly values of kindness and of mercy, that would actually be a theological problem. Because halakha would be misrepresenting the God in whose name it claims to speak. And with that in mind, I want to look at our last source, the Sefer HaChinuch, which is a source in the Middle Ages that talks about various mitzvot and gives reasons behind them. And he says specifically about the laws of kashrut, the fi shahaguf kli hanefesh, because the body is a uh, vessel for the soul. Our soul acts in this universe through our body. We are embodied beings and we use our bodies to act upon the universe. 
So the laws of Kashrut come to do good for humanity. Because God doesn't do bad for humanity. He, oh my goodness, I'm so sorry. I do not know what just happened. Looks like we lost your sound as well, Rabbi. Sorry about the technical difficulties here. Friends, we'll be right back.
Sorry, friends, looks like we're having some technical difficulties. We're going to continue in just a second. Hi, I apologize. Um, I was using a different computer because actually the video on my computer um, broke an hour before this year. So I was using a different laptop that's never happened to me before. I'm now using my laptop where the video, um, the video is not the best, but at least you can hear me. Um, but the truth is I was wrapping up. Okay, I'm gonna stop my video. I'm so sorry. Um, I'm going to stop my video. I apologize. Um, I was using the other laptop because the video on this doesn't really work. But um, I was wrapping up anyhow. But um, my basic line was um, social justice um, and specifically concern for economic distress of others, especially our most vulnerable, I think we've seen today, um, is part and parcel of kashrut law from the Shulchan Aruch, sort of the halachic guidebook through through to the responsa and the applied case law of halakha. And that I think this really makes sense if we think of halakha as divine, divine law that reflects godly values. And when we are thinking of halakha, we're also thinking of what kind of God do we want halakha to reflect? And with that, I'm happy to answer questions and apologize for the technical malfunctions. No worries. Thank you so much. We had a question that was sent to us. Uh, what are your thoughts when at a kosher restaurant, the workers are being treated um, unethically? Does that then cancel out the rest of the kosher um, food being provided? So in my opinion, if we think of kosher as meaning that Jewish law is implemented in the running of the restaurant, then that has to apply to how the workers are treated as well. And it's actually considered a very serious Torah violation uh, to, not play, to not pay your workers on time. Um, and I think that uh, if we as a community are considering um, rabbinic um, laws about maybe how a certain piece of food is prepared without thinking about the Torah laws of how a person is treated, then that is halakhically problematic. Following up on that, we're getting another question here. Um, does that also um, partake to the treatment of animals? So um, I, I didn't go into this because I feel like it could be an entire class. Um, I think that even if you want to say that eating meat is um, ethical and is halachic, 
there is certainly a problem specifically with contemporary uh, factory farms and how the animals are treated. And there is a whole list of um, kosher laws that say that uh, meat is not kosher if there are certain um, injuries that happen to the animal. And to my mind, the reason that we have those laws is because kosher law wants us to uh, treat our animals humanely in a way where they won't get injured. And in order to encourage that, it decided that animals um, who have certain types of injuries would not be considered kosher. So I actually, um, I think that that could be a kosher problem as well. Thank you, friends. We open up um, anybody who's watching here, um, both online on our Facebook or on here to feel free to ask any questions. If not, we can um, then offer your questions to Rabbi Sheena in a later time. Rabbi Sheena, I just want to thank you so much. It was a wonderful, wonderful shiur. Thank you for sharing your Torah. I always enjoy hearing your perspectives, and I very much identify with them, and thank you. Thank you. Thank you for, for coming and for listening. And for those of you who don't know, Batya is a Talmidah Chachama and a rabbi in her own right. Awesome. Thank you so much, friends. Well, with that being said, we're going to go ahead and end today's programming. Thank you so much to Rabbi Sheena uh, and all of you who are joining in to watch this programming. Uh, we appreciate you. And of course, to learn more and get more involved, make sure you visit our growing learning library at our website at utsetic.org. You'll be able to find um, classes like these and plenty more. Have an amazing day. Thank you.